So the year's off to an unusually strong start, given the concerns we had about a global recession, about inflation, and about challenges for earnings for a lot of the companies. And it's really created some confusion. But one of the areas that's gotten uh, the most uh, attention has been the tech area, which has been seeing the FANGs go through a pretty significant adjustment process in terms of valuations, but the whole tech sector has. So I wanted to just step back and take a look at the uh, tech area and the digital economy and the transformation. Today, I want to discuss three things. I want to take a look back at, um, uh, excuse me. I want to take a look back at uh, what tech got right. Um, so I want to just talk about uh, an interesting piece that was written by a, a tech entrepreneur named uh, Paul Graham back in 2004 about what tech got right after the after the crash. And then it was updated by uh, one of the writers for the FT about what tech got right today, because we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater after big pullbacks. And I want to just share what's going on, give you an update on the digital economy. And then I want to share some random thoughts on the global economy. So we'll try and get through this pretty quickly. So uh, Paul Graham wrote an interesting essay. I'll put it into the chat room in a, in a little while, but um, he talked about the things that tech got right after the bubble. And one was that uh, companies were allowed to go public without any earnings. That was a big shift. And we've seen that go back the other way with the, the rise of uh, venture investing, uh, the way it's taken hold over the last couple of years. But back in 2001, that was a big deal that we were you know, buying companies without any earnings. Um, the other thing that came out of it, probably the biggest, was that the internet really was important, and, and uh, we had all these companies falling by the wayside, but how it's changed our lives is, is pretty incredible. But I think some of the other things, I'm not going to go through each one, but um, brilliant young founders were, were people were willing to invest in them, where before it was not quite as easy for the market to get their mind around it, and that youth led to a different kind of formality towards the business, and uh, you know, for, for those who started in the 70s and 80s in the business, IBM and the, the suits and the IBM look was still a, a big part of the world. Um, now we've gone to where suits is a uh, pejorative and a, a negative, not a positive. So you've seen some changes there. And, and that led to uh, issues over substance, over style that the tech world and the, the engineers were taking over again, as opposed to the the brilliant marketers that were, were so uh, popular. But the real issues were equity became the field that drove innovation, and that was through stock options. And they got a better alignment of incentives where startups allowed employees to really feel what their value was and see what the value was towards value creation and their contributions towards it. I think the other thing was we really got to look at productivity and the innovation that productivity drives. Although I will say over the last couple of years, we've had a step back in productivity with the pandemic. But it was an interesting article. I'll, I'll put it in the, in the outlook because we tend to think after a period like we just went through with big declines in valuations that it's over when it could be just the start or a reset of the next phase. So what did we get right this time? I think one of the things that's really clear is the value of data. The stock market puts a lot of... Uh, a value on it. We've talked about it as the new oil. Um, I think that is a big change. And I think the, the data issues will become even bigger as quantum takes hold. So I think that's a, a permanent change that we're still adjusting to. 
I think the other thing was while globalization was slowing, e-globalization has accelerated. And we're now up to 63% of the world's population is connected to the internet. By 2030, they're projecting that almost 100% will be. Um, but you're in a direction where e-commerce is going to continue to be an important part in keeping the world being smaller. Even if we have the fragmentation from a geopolitical perspective, you will still see a more connected world. I think the other thing that really came out is it changed the way work happens, whether it was the pandemic um, changing the, the, the workload we've talked about at work from home, hybrid work is now a much bigger part of it, which has implications for many other industries and including the commercial real estate area and, and what its impact is on cities and city planning and, uh, and the infrastructure setup for the, for the economy. I think the other thing we're seeing right now with the energy transition is it's a great opportunity when you have these types of changes to see massive stock market wealth uh, uh, created. And we've seen that at different points in time uh, when history is going through such transitions. And then the other thing is, while people have talked about crypto and Web3 and, and it didn't work or it's been a disappointment so far, I think everyone's in agreement that blockchain is going to be a game changer, that these things are not, that the first people through the breach tend to get bloodied and take the bullets for everyone else, but it doesn't mean that it's over. And while I'm not a big crypto fan, as you know, I do think the underlying technologies are things that we'll find different uses for as we move forward. And I do think crypto in certain economies does play a very important role, particularly in the emerging markets. So let's jump to the digital economy and the growth of it and how it's changed and how it's become such a bigger part of our, our lives. We still have a ways to go. It's only about 10.5% in 22 estimated. I think the important thing that happened was you started to see a steady move up from 2000 forward as we were using zero interest rates to you know, make big investments. When the pandemic hit, you started to see a leveling off of uh, productivity improvements in the digital economy kind of slowed as we we're having trouble getting supplies. Now that we're getting back into a more normal economy, I think you'll see this accelerate. And this is just for the US. So um, the picture for, the, for other areas is, is not too dissimilar, although China, uh, they're behind us, but it's starting to pick up. I think here you can see the annual growth of the digital economy against the overall economy. And then you can see the total share. The dark blue is the digital economy. You can see how much faster it's growing than the rest of the economy. And that has big implications. And we're starting to see it in terms of compensation. You saw the digital economy at a much higher compensation level in the broader economy. And that's because it's a rare skill set that we have not developed enough. So you're going to have big supply and demand issues still for labor. Um, but we are starting to see some changes. And one of the changes is with AI and robotics, you're starting to see um, the problem solved for uh, uh, skills and availability through robotics. And this just gives you a sizing of the uh, uh, robotic industry in terms of market cap, uh, market size for the total addressable market going out to 2028. That's a pretty fast ramp up. And I think the issue that, that's gonna drive that is the fact that companies are now forced with higher interest rates to be much more efficient capital allocators and get higher returns on their investments than they were before. This is a look at um, robots by region and per uh, 10,000 employees and the average is 74. You can see Europe has been a little more aggressive on that. I think some of that is due to demographics. I think the US and Asia are going to really be accelerating. China last year alone was estimated to be uh, buying over a quarter 
billion uh, robot, a quarter million robots that they were bringing in. So they're looking at adding very aggressively in this area. The other thing that's happening, and we've talked about this a lot, is the manufacturing renaissance that's going on in the US. And it's a, really a reflection of the distortions that are going on in the global economy, whether it's the supply chain distortions coming out of the pandemic, or even going back further, the trade wars, or whether it's the concerns about national security, we are seeing a change in manufacturing coming back to the US that's not insignificant. This chart just shows you from the US uh, Association of Automation, some of the different uh, auto and semiconductor locations just in the last two years that have come in. We think this is the start of a much longer term trend. And as we said before, uh, the US is, be, is a magnet for capital flows right now. We're sucking a lot of dollars out of the rest of the world. It's coming here because of a number of issues, um, but our energy security being one of them. And as uh, capital flows, so do jobs. And that's a big change that's going on. And we think this shift is creating uh, the potential for a new middle class. And I think we're going through a manufacturing shift that may not be unlike uh, the early 1900s when uh, the assembly line came in and you saw Ford was able to cut uh, the price of the Model T from about $860 uh, to around uh, $280. And that made the cars much more affordable. I think you're starting to see with Tesla making their price cuts, some of the automation that's coming in is going to drive costs down in areas and uh, improve competitiveness. So I think there's some really interesting uh, dynamics that are going on that are going to change how industry works in the US and around the world. So I want to give some random thoughts because Mark, you talked about the tech layoffs in the before we started and, and they are happening, but I think it's a big positive for the global economy. It's not a positive for those jobs in the tech area, but I think the tech companies got ahead of themselves in terms of hiring. And now what's going to happen is you're going to see those people that are getting laid off are getting hired very quickly into the, into the public sector, um, private sector who needs these jobs and couldn't get them before. And that's going to allow us to ramp up our productivity again. And I think what you saw over the last couple of years was the strain on finding tech uh, skills was pushing going all to the tech companies and not into the broader economy. And that's what slowed down our productivity improvement. So I, I know the layoffs are painful for the people going through them. Uh, they will probably not get the same types of jobs that they were getting, but they will get other jobs that are in high demand in companies that need them uh, that's going to push things forward. I think the other big surprise for me and for many was that how strong Europe has been and, and how strong Germany has been. Uh, they're faring much better than we anticipated. And, and ironically, when I came back from our trip in September to Europe, I told our team here that it was much more positive than I thought it would have been to having a US perspective on the war. And uh, it's played out that the, the uh, positive energy we felt there is actually a reflection of it wasn't as bad as, as people thought. I think there is some luck here with the warmer weather, but um, this is a big shift for the economy that uh, if Europe can avoid the big downturn, it's, it is in, in mass the largest economy in the world, and uh, that will, will be a very positive for the markets this year. And I think it's part of the reason uh, the U.S. stock markets have done better than anticipated. I think the other big reason is China's reopening, and that is probably the biggest swing factor for investors for this year. Um, it could create some uh, big distortions. We think it's going to uh, have a big impact on commodity prices. We think you've already seen some of that coming out of the blocks this year. Um, but we also think because the supply chains have eased, 
that their reopening might not be as big a, a negative as people think and may actually push uh, uh, ease some of the supply chain issues that we had. But it's not clear which way that goes. And I think that it will be the biggest swing factor for uh, how the markets play out and how the global economy plays out this year. I think from the Fed and the markets, we're in this tug of war between the Fed saying rates are going to stay up for longer and for the uh, market to say the Fed's going to have to bring rates back down again. So I think that resolution is going to come down to how wages work and what the wage inflation continues to go and what we see there. I, I think other inflation is coming down. We've seen that with energy. We've seen that with some food prices um, starting to come down. We've seen it a lot with uh, commodities like lumber and other areas, but wages is the one that's been pretty persistent and that's going to be the big issue. So we think the U.S. will remain a, 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 a really attractive place to invest. We think the reasons are pretty clear. Um, national security, our legislation is driving capital flows, but I would just say on when it comes to China, keep in mind with the slowdown, with the lockdowns that they had, they've accumulated over $2.6 trillion of savings excess savings that as they reopen can be unleashed. And when you think about 2.6 trillion on a 90 some odd trillion dollar economy, that is a massive opportunity to see big changes in capital flows moving forward. So not clear how it plays out, but certainly a more positive start to the year than I think we anticipated. And with some luck, we may be able to uh, engineer a soft landing. Um, but I think there are opportunities to look inside the market, focus on companies, Last year, it was about multiples contracting, a lot of talk this year about earnings, but I think you were also going to want to focus on maintaining margins and who can hold their margins in this environment with the uh, distortions and in input costs and the shifts going on in wages and other areas. So Mark, I'll stop there and open it up for discussion or comments. Stephen, good morning. Thank you. Out of the box fast, Adam. <laughs> really? Adam, are we going to see you in Florida? We yeah. must, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll be there. Did I, did I mention today's the last day to register? Uh, yes, you did. All right. All right. Thank you. Your question, please. Stephen, fantastic report. Very optimistic. Um, um, the, the magnet for capital that you have here. How is that? How is that impacting inflation? Is it is it big enough to impact inflation as well as our exports? Because that certainly that would strengthen the dollar, wouldn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, there's offsets to the st dollar strengthening, which is uh, Europe pushing their rates up and and being behind us in where they are in their rate cycle. Um, uh, Europe is probably six months behind. So I think that you're right, it's, it's creating, and this is the hard part about this economy. So while there is some reason for optimism that it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, doesn't mean it's gonna be good or easy. It's gonna be a difficult year. And one of the areas you're highlighting is the distortions that are coming from the lockdowns, the reopenings and the pandemic and the, and the shifts that are going on. You are seeing some issues that are creating some inflationary pressures and others that are highly deflationary. And it's really going to be the offset of those and the netting of that, that it's not as clear as it's one or the other. It's both right now. And that's actually make, going to make it very difficult, which really makes it goes down to don't think about sectors or industries. Think about businesses and how the businesses can manage their costs 
uh, against a difficult environment where they might not be able to hold their price increases that they put in last year. So that's actually one of the issues that makes it less, makes, would make you a little less optimistic is they got to hold their margins in this environment. And that's going to be a hard problem for a lot of companies. Thank you, Stephen. You're welcome. Michael? Mr. Hammer? Uh, great presentation, Stephen. Um, just a comment on, on your slide, your thought on tech layoffs, because I, I was actually having this discussion yesterday with my co-founder. Um, it's not just non-tech companies that will benefit. Um, a lot of smaller startups will benefit because yes. they had a hard time competing with the large players in attracting key employees. Yeah, I think when you have a when you have such a a, a lack of availability of not only the number of people but the skills that are required, and that be, you free that up, it will play through the whole system. And I think it'll I think it'll lead to a jolt in productivity not next year but probably two years out. We were looking specifically at the AR space. Yep. Yep. And I think that I think one of the benefits. This is one of the challenges of analyzing the big tech companies right now, the FANGs is they have so much of investment dollars that they could reduce or even just eliminate and not miss from their current earnings because they were in such long-term projects. And they can turn around and focus on some of the smaller acquisitions that they made. And these companies made a lot of, you know, $100 million, $200 million acquisitions that are not really paying any benefits, but then they can start focusing on them and will pay big benefits down the road. That's how they've operated. And I think there's, I think they'll do fine. I think the rest of the world will be better off. And I think you're right in the venture area um, and the startup area, that's gonna be a, a big help for them too, because it creates a talent pool that wasn't there. So I think you're right on that. Other questions? Uh, Steven. Yeah, uh, so Stephen, I had a question on the whole uh, startup situation, right? So what we've seen in, in downturns past, and I'm not saying this is necessarily a downturn, it looks like, you know, as you said, we may be back on the upswing, uh, but in this kind of situation, you know, you've pointed to the um, increased availability of tech resources. Um, but, you know, the, the, the venture environment uh, is still a bit challenged. Uh, you know, the cost of capital is, is high still. Uh, but so what's your prognosis for, let's say, the number of new startups and, uh, you know, the amount of startup activity kind of going in, you know, as, as, as the uh, like, you know, short term and then as the economy improves further? It's interesting because in periods of dislocation, like we've had the last couple of years, you're right, startups tend to pick up dramatically, particularly if you go through a wave of layoffs like is potentially coming. Um, however, we're doing it into, as you highlighted, a much higher cost of capital. So the support for them has to be thought of differently than it was for the last decade. So I think you'll see the, I think it does allow for more talent to get into the startup phase, but I think the capital is gonna be much more circumspect in where they put their money going forward. So I think there'll be fewer startups that are going to get the easy run forward for, for capital from, the, from investors like yourselves. I think it's going to take a little, you guys are going to be much harder on where you're putting your next dollar of uh, venture capital to um, with higher hurdles for them to get their returns, your, to meet your return expectations. So I think that change is, is going to come. So I think you'll see both. I think you'll see an increase in startups, but I think the money flowing to those startups will be much harder to get access. Wanda? 
Stephen, thank you very much. My question is sort of academic, but not academic. Digital economy growth versus GDP. Uh, and GDP is used to measure recession, for example. GDP does not incorporate uh, in its definition the value of data. And you have indicated the importance of data, value of data. So in the, the, the discussion, are we in recession? We are not in the recession when GDP is being compared. There are these two views. So my, my question is, have you heard about any attempts to bring the value of data and value of digital economy into the GDP measures? Yeah, many of the uh, regional central banks have done studies on this in the past. They know we're not capturing search well uh, for example, the, the value of search isn't captured in GDP well, and there are a number of those. So the problem is how do they come up with a uh, adjustment to it that you use going forward and how do you compare it to the historicals is one of the challenges they have. Um, so I think they're, I don't think they have an answer. They don't have an answer for it yet or they would have made the adjustment, but it is understating uh, some of the uh, benefits of technology in, a, in probably many of the benefits of technology in a material way. Thanks. We have a question from iPhone 2. Mark? Who, who is iPhone 2? That might be me, Hamlet. Hamlet, okay. Of course, a, a cyber. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna add one comment on the uh, on the venture piece. I think venture overall is gonna be challenged, but if you look at selective spaces, uh, deep tech, disruptive tech, um, it has to do with national security, economic security. This is actually, I think, gonna be a, a good time to allocate because for some of these early stage companies, they're gonna be out developing their product market fit for the next two years, not necessarily relying on the economy. So. Um, being selected, I think, is going to be key. Yeah, I, I agree, Hamlet. I think the I think the pockets of opportunity are, are going to narrow considerably uh, for investors, and and where you can have confidence that these businesses will be able to um, manage through the distortions of the global economy and maintain their margins uh, and grow is going to be very difficult. I think there's, there's going to be a a narrower group that does that, and as we talked about last week. The legislature by the U.S. government gives you a good roadmap for where you can see capital flows with some degree of confidence, as you highlighted, national security being one of them, um, that makes it pretty clear uh, where you can see better, better chance for returns than other areas. I think that's a, I think that's a key point. I also think you're, you're seeing some of the retail companies now with um, distortions in their inventories because they were not expecting uh, the shifts to happen as they have, and, and we haven't gotten the inventory ordering right, and that's gonna hold back some companies. And I think you're gonna see some companies who had price increases this year will have to do price cuts next year uh, to manage through. And I think that's going to uh, give you a sense of the winners and losers, who can hold margins, who can hold price, who have, where's price inelasticity is gonna be a big issue. I think that's right. Stephen, do you, do you think, uh, other than the companies that are right-sizing, that this uh, sort of negative sentiment slash recession prediction is being used by companies, uh, I think we've seen this in the past, uh, to 
to basically lay off chunks of the workforce and be able to actually realign who's doing what in the company without having to say anything else about it. Amazon's 18,000 people laid off is out of 1.5 million employees just in the U.S. alone. Yeah, I, there, there, is, there is a lot of that. And I think, it, I think the one area that's most aggressive in that is the financial services industry. Um, you know, and you saw it, you saw it go through the list of, uh, you know, the, the bonus cuts and the things like that, that they were doing was, you know, they got a little ahead of themselves and they're doing a, a lot of right sizing. So I think that's, I think that's correct. I also think there's, um, when you had zero interest rates, there were a lot of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, investments that were, would not be made in any other environment. And I think those are getting cut out now. Uh, and I think that's part of it too, uh, Andrew. It's, it's not just the, the, the way to right size. It's a way to fix some of the mistakes they made about investing in areas that they probably shouldn't have invested in, in business lines or in new products or things like that. You are starting to see that get sliced off. So yeah, there's a lot of talk about the tech area, but uh, I think the uh, financial services industry has shown how reflexive you can be against a... Uh, difficult environment or, or even just the rise in interest rates. So I think you're, I think you're right on that. Andrew. Howdy. Happy Tuesday. Um, back on the, uh, on the labor slash tech front, um, Microsoft announced 10,000 layoffs, but they last year hired 40,000 people. So what you're seeing, at least the perception uh, among my colleagues is that these layoffs would have happened anyways. Uh, this is the natural churn of these massive corporations that are very dynamic and constantly investing and divesting in assets uh, and businesses. And that what they're doing is they're playing uh, the game that Wall Street wants them to play, which is announce, uh, announce layoffs as opposed to just doing it. Uh, and that makes them look smarter and more adaptable to changing conditions. But a lot of this is, uh, is cosmetic at the end of the day. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, there's another element that's going on that isn't getting as much attention, but um, Ed Hyman at ISI has an interesting uh, survey that they do of companies, and they, they've been surveying them for some time on the difficulty of hiring. And the survey said that basically for the, since April of 21, anywhere between 60 and 80% of the companies were claiming difficulty in hiring. And last month in November, it was 71%. For December, it dropped to 30%. So in one month, they saw the sentiment from uh, businesses in their survey on hiring switch that fast to, um, to a 40-point change in uh, difficulty versus ease of hiring. So I think these layoffs are actually going to have some really positive implications throughout the system over time. Um, you don't want to think positively about people getting laid off, but the implications for the broader economy, I think, are more positive than uh, people will realize in the short term. Other comments, questions? I've got some thoughts just to add another point to the, the narrative on the VC uh, state of the venture industry is that uh, we're finally seeing for the first time ever material innovation in the very venture funding model. And we're seeing all sorts of new um, formats, new styles of investing, new fund strategies, et cetera. And 
I suspect uh, that we're gonna see in the coming year or two, what happened in the early 80s when we, when the ERISA laws changed, which freed up uh, fiduciary led pools of money, pension plans and others to actually invest in the venture asset class in a much broader context. So we had a blush of all new venture funds because there was, they wanted to accommodate the new money flows. And then we had material innovation follow the money. We had an explosion in new technology companies because you saw a lot of mental managements leaving uh, the Hewlett Packards and Intel's of the world and starting companies and doing something that the, the bigger companies didn't want to put any resources behind and go after, but customers were actually interested in. And so I, I think we're going to see that movement coming up here when you talk about numbers of startups and the like. It does follow the money. But I think that we're going to see there's a lot of folks like I saw in the 90s, a lot of the VCs that that obviously end up with more than just egg on their face, but they got blown out of the venture industry because they threw money at stupid deals during the bubble and they just left the industry. Yep. I, I think we're going to see the same thing happen with the, a, a big crop of the current VCs for obvious reasons. Um, they're not going to get fund two or fund three. And you're going to see a whole new crop of venture firms and fund models that's going to make the cost of capital lower again and bring it down uh, from these folks that are licking their wounds from the silly investments they made the last couple of years. Let's talk about take new players. Joe, let's let's talk about what's different today than then. We were in the we we were in a, a a time of offshoring everything. We were China uh, sucking uh, capital. Now, I think we have a more diversified uh, over the next three, four, five years. We're actually going to start manufacturing again. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a, there's a CapEx boom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there, there is, again, I'll say thankfully, that's an editorial comment, but thankfully, we're finally seeing some innovation. Oh, oh. The and the price of energy, which is why these major industrial projects are happening here and not in Europe elsewhere that are energy driven. Yeah, we're going to see real businesses get funded, but that's going to take a crop of different investors that actually understand how to read business plans and not just follow somebody else's term sheet and jump on a jump on a hot, a perceived hot deal. So, like I said, I think you're going to see some maturity evolve into the venture world where the investment decision making, the fund strategies, the risk management tactics, the capital deployment strategies are going to look much sounder. And that's going to mobilize new money into the venture asset class. I mean, you, you heard Anurag a couple of meetings ago talk about the San Jose's pension plan has a 6% allocation of venture. Um, he and I have had some interesting chats about the why, but Mel will tell you the same thing is that, you know, so much of the existing venture um, um, industry has been largely trained on following, following trends, following what's hot. And, and that's not a skill set that's going to be, I think, equipped for what's going to be a coming new environment, the venture model and, and the and a new economy that you speak to. So Joe, do you think the holding periods are going to extend out now because of the higher interest rates and the difference? Is that one of the changes you think might be coming? I, I think one of the keys, and again, this is part of the research that we'll be talking about in a future thing, but one of the real keys to uh, managing risk in the venture asset class is because of the illiquid nature, right? You've got real interesting dynamics, illiquid, but also asymmetric upside. So how do you manage the timing risk issue and still capture the asymmetric upside when you've got 
the deep tech takes longer cycle times than a SaaS or CPG or what a lot of money was thrown at. And that's what comes from the capital deployment, more discipline in staging your capital deployment. Think dollar cost averaging, because that also helps solve for the incremental and, and constant capital needs of these deep tech expensive business models. And so you need a, a better capital deployment model than what is typically thrown at the SaaS models or CPGs or some of the, the things that people throw money at uh, uh, lately or in the last, the last, this last bubble. So that's where I think the innovation is going to come from. And again, I think that you're going to see a uh, also the infrastructure put in place where we're going to have 40 act wrappers around some of these things. So you can have quarterly NAV. They'll look like closed in trusts. They won't be ETFs traded where because you where you need you know minute to minute pricing, but you can have NAV calculations on a venture portfolio quarterly and provide some degree of quarterly liquidity much like we see in real estate partnerships and other uh, alternative assets. So we're gonna see some of those 40 act-like structures, well, 40 act structures, more likely a closed-in trust model where there's quarterly liquidity, um, where people, it starts looking more like an asset class and you can make some long cycle bets, but also have some exit if you have some need for liquidity that was un unscheduled or unplanned. Thank or you. Other questions, comments? Steve, can I, can I ask a quick question uh, with regards to real estate? I've started to hear a lot more dislocations and sort of distressed um, asset offerings, uh, whether it's hospitality, even commercial. And with the, you know, w with just a lot of debt, uh, low-priced debt uh, coming up due um, over the next couple of years, I, I'm curious to see what you've heard um, on the real estate front. Yeah, real estate's funny because you have, I think you have the, the new real estate guys that are, you know, took advantage of the low interest rates and started getting very active in real estate because of zero interest rates. And I think they're going to be on the wrong side of the market. I think the guys who have been established and been doing this where they're using, uh, you know, their equity and their cash flows to do it as opposed to uh, debt, I think they're going to come in and vet, vulture a lot of these guys. So I think you have really two kinds of real estate markets, the guys who are cash buyers and the guys who are in the debt side. And I think you'll see the difference of, uh, of who comes out of this okay because of that. And I, I do think a lot of people got thought zero interest rates going to be around for a lot longer, or they certainly didn't expect you know, a 4.5% jump in short rates in a year. And I think that is going to put some people on the wrong side of it. But I think overall the commercial real estate side has, you know, some challenges, particularly in the cities of, you know, this whole shift in work. So I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of uh, puts and takes there, but I do think some people are going to get hurt badly. I'm, I'm curious, maybe Paul, Paul Mangione was at Apollo, which runs a, I don't know, 8 billion real estate book. Some of those loans, like corporate loans are often, not as long as some of these commercial. I don't know. I wonder if they could kick the can a little further down the road. Um, I don't know if you got any insights on that. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about like the kind of assets that go into a CLO, I think the you know the corporate loans are floating rate. So I think there's right. They get uh, hurt. You know, they're going to start seeing more. Uh, you know, higher interest costs for that and kind of just yeah. the overall more overall risk. I think they're typically, you know, they go to like five years. Uh, so they have time to 
before the refi risk, but I think it's the interest rate risk that's going to be the cause of uh, kind of distress for some companies. 